Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 7. That's on page 1004 if you're using the church Bible. Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to start reading uh, from verse 19 of chapter 6 just to put it in its framework. Let's hear the Word of God. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. Why would anyone want to renounce Christianity? Well, you may think of a number of reasons given the way the world is going, uh, given the fact that Christianity is becoming increasingly marginalized in the West. I think it's 1% of people in the UK go to church on a Sunday. That percentage is much higher in America, but it's not what it used to be. People in the writer's day, the author of Hebrews, the people he's writing to had come from a Jewish background. They'd been brought up in Judaism. It was all they knew. It had introduced them to the God who was the creator of everything, and, and they'd followed and worshipped and served Him. When this letter was written, the temple was still there in Jerusalem. The priesthood was still in place. The sacrifices were still being offered. The people who'd been on visits to Jerusalem could remember the pomp and circumstance, the color, the brightly colored robes of the high priest, the great headdress upon his head. They saw the marching 
of the people up the hill to Mount Zion, to the, to the Temple Mount. They saw the great, uh, fire, the, the great the fire of the sacrifices being offered day after day after day. It was so splendid. But now they were Christians. They didn't have churches in those days, so they, let, they met in people's rooms, people's homes. I remember when we were visiting Rome, we went to see a church called San Clemente. And if you, if you go down to the sub-basement, so there's a first-century street, and then there's a fourth-century church, and then there's an 11th-century church on top, which is still there in, in all its fullness. You can see on the, on the street level the old Roman paving stones, the old Roman houses are still there. You go through the doors into the homes. There's a, a little Mithric temple there. And one of the houses is Clement's house, where they used to meet. Just a small little place. In fact, they tried to remember that little place when they were given a building in the fourth century, and they were given this grand basilica to meet in, bigger than this room, they built a little wall in the middle, about this high, with a door on each of the, of the sides. And the wall, walled area, was the size of Clement's living room. They couldn't get away from it. They'd been there so long, this big basilica seemed overwhelming. So, to keep themselves together, they met in the same sized room. And if you were baptized, you became a Christian, were baptized, you got into the middle with, with them. But you imagine it, from the grandeur of the temple to a living room, it's quite a come down, isn't it? And so, some of them were longing to go back to the ceremony and pageantry of the temple worship. That's really where we find them. And this is what the author is addressing as we speak. He is talking about various aspects of that ceremony, and he's focusing at this moment on the priesthood. With all of their finery and all of the, all of the ceremony of their activity and so on, and he's arguing in this passage that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself is our great high priest. And He takes them back to Genesis chapter 14. He takes them back to the story of this man, Melchizedek, who was both a king and a priest. That combination is forbidden in the law of Moses, but this was 500 years before the law of Moses was ever written that this man, Melchizedek, lived. And as he tells the story of Melchizedek, the key words that are at the end of verse 3, that the Holy Spirit, in recording the story of Melchizedek, made him resemble, made him like the Son of God. Now, when we read that, we, we because we're well-trained Christians, though you may not be a Christian, so uh, let me tell you that when we think of that, usually when we use the expression Son of God, we think of Jesus or Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus Christ. And each of those names denotes something different about that historical figure, the Lord Jesus. 
When we think of Him as Jesus, we think of Him in His humanity. He was born of a virgin. He was given the name Yeshua, Jesus, because He would save His people from their sins. And if you saw Him walking around the streets of Jerusalem or Bethlehem or Nazareth, there would be nothing to identify Him beyond little Yeshua running around the streets with all the other little boys and girls. If God was one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to find His way home, would we recognize Him? You wouldn't have recognized Jesus. He was human like us. He grew up in a human family like us. Jesus stands for His humanity. Then there's the word Christ. Word Christ is a title, not a name. And the title, Messiah or Christ, points us to Jesus with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature in one person. Because He has an office to fulfill. He has a work to do. He has to straddle the distance between humanity and divinity, between man and God. And He does so Himself, because not only is He Jesus, not only is He Messiah, He is the Lord. That is, He is the Son of God. He is by very nature God. And so as Christ, He brings together these polar opposites, these humendously, by very definition, radically different natures, human nature and divine nature, in one person. And when we read this expression, Son of God, at the end of verse 3, the author is making us think about His divine nature, His divine origin. And he's saying this, that as you read the story of Melchizedek in the Bible, the Holy Spirit makes Melchizedek like the Son of God. He makes him resemble the Son of God. That's very important. And what the author has been doing so far, and this is what we've already looked at, so far he has emphasized the excellency of the titles of this man, Melchizedek. His name, first of all. His name means, by translation, king of righteousness. There are two parts to his name, Melech, king, Sedak, righteousness. They're both cobbled together in this one name, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And he's the king of Jerusalem, of Salem. And that word means peace. He is the king of peace. He brings together these two aspects of righteousness and peace, and we discover as we go on in the Bible that these are in the same order right through the Bible. Righteousness leads to peace. You put right with God, and you have peace with God. And uh, throughout the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ is the source and the procurer and the cause and the dispenser of righteousness and peace to men and women who come to Him. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will raise up for David, the king, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. Because he is righteous in himself. He gives righteousness, a a status of righteousness to his people who believe in him. And he begins the work of making us more and more righteous as we follow him. So he points us to the excellency of the Son's person. And then secondly, he points us to the eternity of the Son's priesthood. There at the end of chapter 6, he says, Jesus has gone, gone into heaven, gone behind the curtain into the very inner sanctuary of God's presence, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then again in verse 3 of chapter 7, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, remember the big point here is that the author is saying that Melchizedek resembles the Lord Jesus, the Son of God. And I want you to notice how he unpacks this as we read verse 3. Here's what he says about Melchizedek, that as you read the biblical story, as you read the narrative that you find there in the three verses that mention his name, you will discover that there is nothing said about his mother or father, nothing said about his genealogy or his birth or his death or a succession of people following him in office as a priest. Nothing is said of that at all. And the author is saying that resembles, points us towards the Son of God. Because as the Son of God, He was without Father on earth as to His human nature. New Testament says about the Lord Jesus that He was born of a woman. Isaiah foretold that He would be born of a virgin. Jeremiah said, the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. A woman gives birth to a man on her own without any male influence or contribution whatsoever. That's a miracle. And the Lord Jesus was without father in accordance with his human nature. He only had a mother, born of a woman, made under the law. Or when you consider the Lord Jesus in his divine nature, he was without a mother. Whenever you and I think about this language of father and son in the Bible, we are not to take our experience of father and sonning and transpose it onto God that would be a massive fail on our part. We cannot take something that belongs to the creature 
and, pro and if you like, project it onto the Creator, because there is a there is a fundamental disjunction of being between the Creator, who is life in Himself, and the creature who is utterly dependent on the Creator for life and breath and everything else. That fundamental disjunction between those two things is fundamental to our understanding of our Christian lives and of the Bible. Therefore, for people to say, as they do, that you can look at men-women relationships and project them onto God and see a, a mirror there of men, human relation, men and women relationships here is absolute nonsense. It's inconceivable by anybody who actually understands what the Bible teaches. This fundamental disjunction of being between God and people. According to His divine nature, Jesus was without mother because He was eternally generated by the Father in heaven. He is eternally from the Father, of the Father. His life, the Father has life in Himself, and He's given to the Son to have life in Himself. Everything God is, the Son is. Everything God has, the Son has. Everything God does, the Son does. Everything that is God is in God the Son. So he is without mother according to his divine nature. As to genealogy, there is a genealogy of Jesus' human nature. You can read it in Matthew chapter 1, and you can read it in Luke chapter 2, and there you find it traced all the way back to Abraham by Matthew and all the way back to Adam by, the, by Dr. Luke in his gospel. You can read about some of the crazy people that are in Jesus' on Jesus' genealogy as a human being. People who did some really bizarre and others who did some wonderful things, great people and, and lesser, men and women, all in the genealogy of Jesus. He was a real human being. But as God, there is no genealogy. As, as Isaiah said when referring to the Messiah, who shall declare His generation? Who will know His genealogy? Or, or, or His beginning, or His process. There is none. He is from eternity. He is what He is. I am that I am, Jesus says. According to His divine nature, He has neither beginning of days or end of life. Now, you see, in, in the, the, the writer's use of the story of Melchizedek, he is using Psalm 110 as the key to unlocking what is going on in the story of Melchizedek. He is using Psalm 110, which says, which portrays Yahweh speaking to Adonai. Adonai is just another way of saying Yahweh in the Old Testament. They're used interchangeably. Yahweh says to Adonai, you are a priest forever according to the office of Melchizedek. Oh, well, that, then if that psalm is talking about the Father speaking to the Son from all eternity, then when I look at the story of Melchizedek, I am looking at someone who is being made by the Holy Spirit, who is active, inspiring the Bible here, making him look like the Son of God. 
And, and we, we see this even more clearly when, when we find these statements made of Melchizedek, because they're made of Melchizedek here. Not absolutely like they are of the Lord Jesus, but relatively. But in the story, if you go back to Genesis 14, there's no mention of his father and his mother. There's no mention of his beginning or his ending. There's no mention of those things. Why are they absent? Why are they absent from a book which is built around genealogies? It is the book of genealogies of generations. We have chapters that divide up Genesis, but the actual biblical chapters that divide up Genesis are all hinged around those genealogies because they're all showing the movement of history towards the coming of the Messiah. And so here is one individual in this book, in those three verses, who has a pivotal role to play, and there is no mention of it. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit has left it out so that we would begin to see and to think about the Lord Jesus when He came that Melchizedek has been made like the Son of God. In His priesthood, there's no genealogy. There's nobody who had it before Him. There's nobody in the story that has it after Him. He comes as it were, and He hangs there in the middle of history with no beginning and no ending. And we're to look at that as a narrative and say, in that narrative portrayal of Him, He is like the Son of God, who has no beginning and has no ending. When the Lord Jesus is talking about Himself, He uses the first and the last letters of the Hebrew. And the first and the last letters of the Greek. He is the A and the Z. Z is the English for Z. (laughs) He is the beginning and the ending. He is the first and the last. He is without beginning and without ending. He comprehends everything in Himself. And it's a remarkable thing then that the Holy Spirit, who is active in and through and with and under and alongside Holy Scripture, inspiring it at every point along the way, recorded the life of Melchizedek for the first time through Moses over 500 years after the man lived. In that 500 years, any memory of the man would be lost. You see, when Abraham knew Melchizedek, Melchizedek was well known. People knew about him. He was a king, the king of Jerusalem. He was a priest king. That was very unusual, highly unusual back then. He was a worshiper of the, only high, of the most high God. There were very few of them going around, so everybody else who was a worshiper of the Most High God would know Melchizedek. He was very well known. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about that. Moses tells us nothing about that. By the time Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling the story, everybody who knew anything about Melchizedek as their great uncle or their great, 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 granddad was gone and Ancestry.com hadn't been invented. 
And so the Holy Spirit arranged it that the first mention of him would be outside the bounds of anybody saying, oh, I knew this, or I knew that, or I knew the other thing about this man. We know nothing. And then 1,000 years after he lived, David writes about him when he is describing this vision he had of the Lord saying to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool, and you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And it wasn't until 2,000 years after Melchizedek lived that the Son of God came into the scene, and this writer helps us here by pointing to Melchizedek and saying, you see how Melchizedek's priesthood remains in perpetuity? It never ceases because the Bible doesn't record when it ever ceased. The Bible jumps from Melchizedek to the Lord Jesus, who is still a priest in the presence of God. Melchizedek's priesthood lasts in perpetuity forever. The type finds his future in the antitype. Type is the word we use for someone who represents somebody else. Melchizedek represents the Son of God. The Son of God is the antitype, the one represented. And he perpetuates that priesthood of Melchizedek, forever. It does not cease. It does not end. It does not cease, and it does not end because Jesus has gone behind the curtain as our forerunner, having become a high priest forever. That's a different word. Forever, eternally, after the order of Melchizedek. This is the eternity of Jesus' priesthood. This does not fall into the category of anybody else that's come along and been a priest or had served that function. But then secondly, I want you to notice the superiority of Jesus' priesthood. You look at the action of Abraham. Abraham gave him a tenth of the best he had. Now, why does he introduce Abraham here? Well, he introduces Abraham here because Abraham is very, very important. The language is something like this, even Abraham, Abraham, the founder of the Jewish nation, the founder of the Arab nation, Abraham, the model of faith, Abraham, the one who received the promises of God concerning the Messiah, Abraham, your father, if you are a believer in Jesus, because those who believe in Jesus follow the faith of Father Abraham. He's very important. Abraham. The patriarch. That comes from two words, meaning he is the supreme father or the great father or the head father. He's the head father of everybody that follows. That is, everybody descended from him by a natural means. He's the head honcho of that whole family root that goes on and on and on. More than that, he is the father of the faith and the faithful. He's the patriarch. 
There were other patriarchs. There were the 12 tribes of Israel. They're the, the children of, uh, of Israel, each heading up a clan. They were the head fathers of the clans. There was David. David, came, the first patriarch to hold the office of the king in Israel. And from him, all the other kings were descended, including the Messiah. But all of them were descended from Abraham, who is the patriarch of patriarchs. You with me? And what he's saying is this, that even Abraham recognized the superiority of Melchizedek over him and tithed to Melchizedek. It's the first mention of the tithe in the Bible. It's mentioned 500 years before it becomes law in Israel, in which uh, during the period of the temple and ceremony of the tabernacle, Israelites would tithe to the priests, to the priestly family, the, the tribe of Levi, to support them. Uh, tithing as a law ends with Jesus, as do all of the ceremonies of the Old Covenant. But in the New Testament, we find that there is still a sense in which we give in a similar way to the work of God, and we don't have priests in the church today, but we have ministers of the gospel. And uh, in the New Testament, the principle of giving for the support of the ministry of the Word and sacraments is repeated by the Apostle Paul in Galatians and in Corinthians and in other passages. Here Abraham gives to Melchizedek, and the writer argues do you know who was there? Levi was in Abraham's genes. Levi, the head of the priestly clan of Israel, was in Abraham's genes then. And that means that when Abraham recognized the superior priesthood and gave money to it as a symbol of his recognition, this man speaks the Word of God. This man brings the Word of God to bear. He was recognizing the supremacy of Melchizedek, and because Melchizedek resembles the Son of God, he was recognizing the superiority of the priesthood to which Melchizedek points the finger, recognizing the superiority of our King and priest Jesus. Not only was it a superior status, but a superior life. Look at how, look how the writer puts it in verses 7 and following. It's beyond dispute the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are, may, are received by mortal men, that is the Levites, in the other, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. What's he talking about? Well, he's saying when you read the story of Melchizedek in the Bible, you just see him alive. There he is, blessing Abraham, 
bringing out bread and wine, blessing Abraham. You can read the blessing that He spoke over Abraham and therefore over everybody that follows over you and me if you're a believer here this morning. Melchizedek's blessing applies over us. He lives. No record of His being dead. In this, He resembles. He points to. He is like the Lord Jesus who really lives in the power of an endless life, as we'll find out later on. In every possible respect, Melchizedek is superior. Now, when it says it is testified that he lives, all it means is that the Bible record gives that impression, leaves it that way, testifies that Melchizedek is alive, period. Of course, he died. He was born. He died. We just don't, aren't told the story. This is how Thomas Aquinas puts it. It is testified in Scripture that he lives, that is, no mention is made of his death, not because he did not die, but because he symbolizes a priesthood that abides eternally. And Philip Edgecombe Hughes uh, writes that the inference in Psalm 110 that the one who is a priest of the order of Melchizedek is a priest forever is drawn from what is tacitly and typologically implied from the very structure of the Genesis narrative. A priest forever, superior. And the last little thing that he throws in there in verse 9 this is a little slap to those who were thinking of going back to the Levitical priesthood that was organized still in Jerusalem. He says, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes from the people who go to the temple, paid tithes through Abraham. The solidarity of the son's priesthood is this. that He comes to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. In the New Testament, this idea of solidarity is used by the Apostle Paul when he points to Adam. Adam sinned. Christ obeyed. Adam sinned in our place. Christ obeyed in our place. We were there in Abraham's heart or in his genes, depending on whether we're, we're related spiritually or physically to Abraham, and he gave tithes to Melchizedek, who is like the Son of God. You see, in Christ, Melchizedek and Abraham meet once again, and they represent the eternal and the earthly. They represent God and man. The heavenly and the earthly are united in one eternal reality, the man, Christ, Jesus. And the gulf that separates humans in their sin, on the one hand, from God in His righteousness, on the other hand, is bridged by our priest, Jesus, when we come to Jesus, we are brought 
near to God. When we trust in Jesus, we are brought into the presence of God. When we trust in Jesus, the righteousness that He has is credited to us, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. As the writer says again and again, we've been called as Christian people to think, that is to use our minds, and that in thinking and in reflecting and contemplating your truth, to find not mere words, but to find the power of the Holy Spirit who gave the words, to do the work of changing our thinking and conforming us more and more to the image of our Lord Jesus. And we pray this morning that as we have thought of Him in His eternity, in His superiority, in His action on our behalf, as we've thought of Him in the excellency of His person, that we would worship Him, that we would count it an honor to be associated with Him, that we go back into our places of abode and work, taking Him with us, and by His Holy Spirit, standing for Him in a world that's opposed to Him. That we might pray to You, come to You, Father, on His name and with His support, grateful that He ever lives to make intercession for us. We pray these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen.